the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. On this episode of the Cooper Vortex, we were privileged to get Martin Andrade. Marty is a blogger, radio host, writer, and author of Finding D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead in America's Only Unsolved Skyjacking. In that book, I believe he has provided the best evidence that Cooper survived the jump. Aside from his own book, Marty is an expert on someone else's book, D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened by Max Gunther. It's a book written by a popular journalist in 1985, and we'll talk about it a lot in this interview. I had a lot of fun talking D.B. Cooper with Marty, and I hope you have as much fun listening to it. Ladies and gentlemen, my good friend, Martin Andrade. Well, let's start with how did you get sucked into the Cooper Vortex? It was something I, I had always been interested in. By the way, thanks for having me on the podcast. I remember I read a book as a kid years and years ago. Uh, I actually still have the book. I had a snippet of, about D.B. Cooper in it, but I had never really gotten into it until uh, two things happened. One, is I saw Tom Kay, who was on a previous podcast, on I think that uh, the Nat Geo program, talking about one of his earlier theories that he no longer holds, by the way, but I thought was completely ridiculous. And I got so angry that I started looking into the into the Cooper thing. Then a little bit after that, I ended up getting laid off. So I had free time to just really dive in. And as you can, as you probably well know, this particular true crime case is is so addicting. And it just completely sucks you in. It's Definitely. it's remarkable. So where did you get started with it then? You're you're laid off, and now all of a sudden you're obsessed with DB Cooper, and have plenty of time to look into it. Yeah, so you just you just start doing web searches, and uh, eventually I, I ran into one of the DB Cooper forums, uh, and I just started reading the stuff, and I don't know, it, it all this stuff seemed to happen all at once. And it's hard looking back on it to figure out exactly what is what. But I ran into Tom Kay's research and, and Tom Kay's going to come up a, a number of times here because he's so central to the case right now. And I found his website and I found his findings and they're, they're just out there. The, the particles on the tie, a fantastic podcast, by the way, I just finished listening to it a few hours ago. Oh, thank you. And I just, I just thought, oh, okay, this this case is going to be very, very simple, and uh, one of the, I'm I'm just going to look at everything. I'm going to read every book. I'm going to look at every suspect. I'm going to compare them to Tom Kay's findings. This might. I was a blogger for a very long time, and I thought, oh, this will be a couple interesting blog posts, and that'll be the end of it. And I can go. I can move on to something else. This is good 
this is something good for the summertime to do, just just to channel my energy and my frustrations with being unemployed. And, you know, two years later, I have a book written. And three years after that, I'm still doing interviews and still have book sales. And I've suddenly become, um, I'm not a big player in this, I don't, I don't believe, but I definitely, I'm definitely in. Like, I feel like an entrenched Cooper Vortex troll, and I feel a little bit trapped even. Well, I'd definitely put you in, like, the top 20 since you have a book out on the subject. <laughs> Thanks. Who's number 18? <laughs> <laughs> was it really the 18th book written on the subject? No, no, I don't know what it was, but... <laughs> So one thing that I thought was really interesting that you do a fantastic job in your book. Does D.B. Cooper survive the jump? Of course he does. This is, and this is the source of my frustration with this case is there are so many people convinced that Cooper died and the evidence does not support it. If you put on a parachute and you jump out of an aircraft, you have one thing on your mind. And that is opening up that parachute. If the parachute does not fail, uh, then you're going to survive. From what I've heard from other parachute guys, these parachutes just don't fail. The, the failure rate on an emergency rig like this is very, very low. It was properly packed. It was a good parachute. Cooper would have pulled that the ripcord. It the, didn't matter in any way what his position is, if he's tumbling or not tumbling, or if he's in that um, that reverse C, that high uh, high resistance body position, or if he's asymmetrical or not, he pulls a ripcord. Everybody does. Yeah, in your book, the the data you use to compare World War II ejections uh, and their that survivability rate under terrible conditions, I thought was really interesting and makes a great case that he survived the jump. I was shocked that nobody else had done this research. Now, I found Freeman Dyson, who's a very famous physicist, was a statistician with the British government at the time, and he had done a little bit of work on parachuting, and he writes about it in um, his book. I cited it in my book. But nobody had actually looked at a complete data set for these bailouts, and I was able to find one. It was over Denmark, and it included both Allied and Axis powers, and it was a complete data set. The, whoever did it, it was a memorial website for people who had been involved in, uh, um, you know, liberating Denmark. And it was complete. So you go through it and say, okay, what is, this, what is the survival rate? People jump out of an aircraft. RAF flew at night. So it's the middle of the night. It's a cold, windy. Denmark is, uh, you know, on the, on the northern part of Europe there next to the sea. It's not a great place to jump at night in the wintertime or in the fall or whatever. And the answer was basically everybody. I could not find a single example of somebody, confirmable is what I say, where you have a group of people jump out of an aircraft, they're on the ground, and they find out some guy landed without a, you know, landed dead, uh, flat, you know, pancaked, and didn't pull his ripcord. Not a single one in over 400 jumps. Uh, I think that's very telling. Definitely. When I finished your book, I thought, okay, Cooper survived. That's it. There should be no more discussion after this. Right. I think I can't say it enough. You did such a good job <laughs> um, proving or 
theorizing that Cooper did survive the jump. And I haven't even published my latest bit is the way to look at these things statistically is from a Bayesian point of view. And if you know statistics, Bayesian probability of A given B is equal to probability of B given A times probability of A over probability of B. Uh, it's but if, if you were 95% sure that because money, that means Cooper died, you still have an 80 to 90% chance that Cooper lived. So that's the probability that Cooper died, given that we found the money, is equal to how confident we are that we found the, that how confident we are that he died because we found the money, which you say it's ninety five percent, times probability of A, which is probability he died, which is 005 percent, divided by the chance they lost the money. Well, guess what? Other guys lost the money on their jumps, so that that denominator should be between 0.25 and 0.4. I don't want to throw numbers, especially in a podcast, not, a, not the best place for math. The bottom line is you come up with a probability that Cooper survived of 80 to 90%. Depends on exactly how you figure out those numbers. Yeah, and with all the other planning, it, it seems to me he he survived the jump. I And, and it was it, – it, the my frustrations with people not understanding this is about 80% of my energy – and why I continue pursuing this is I am so confident they survived. And, and that matters because if he doesn't survive, there is a very, very specific subset of people to look at, which is people who were missing after 1971. You go into those people and there's nobody that, that there are not any good options. There's a couple that, um, that other people have written about and neither one matches any other evidence. Neither one um, would have any knowledge of an aircraft. Neither one would have any knowledge of parachuting. So there, there just isn't any good options if he died. So you have to look at people who survived. That's the way forward with the case. Yeah. And I think the FBI would have looked into the missing persons aspect of it more than anything else, because I think they wanted to believe he died in the jump. Oh yeah. If they could have pegged this on anybody. They would have, for sure. All right, so D.B. Cooper survives the jump. Do you think the drop zone's accurate? That is the most difficult one. And from what the, – the thing is they were able to, based on the data that they got from this case, they were able to track down everybody else who jumped. Hetty, McCoy, they knew exactly where the guys jumped because of – this case. So they are really, really confident. But when you really dig down into it, you realize that the flight data recorder doesn't have a timestamp on it. They're just they're just kind of guessing by how fast the recorder moves, how fast the metal tapes move inside the machine, about about the approximate timestamps. Uh, you have a lot of conflicting evidence. If you talk to Bill Radizak, he says 813. The uh, radio message was it was recorded at 811, so they put it back to 810. And then you have the flight engineer Anderson. Anderson says it could have been anywhere from five to 10 minutes after last contact. So that actually gives you a really big window of between 2010 and about uh, 2015. I'm using military time, 810 and 815. I, uh, my attitude is to be as orthodox as possible. The evidence really suggests that Cooper jumping out of the aircraft was what Radizak reported. So that puts, and, and it actually annoys me because my theories, my ideas 
about who Cooper was work better if he if he loses the money in the jump over the Columbia, which I guess he, he couldn't do if he jumped over Ariel, which is my belief is he jumped over Ariel or close to it. So you do think the drop zone's accurate? That was a long-winded way of saying yes, it was. Uh, some qualifiers. <laughs> some qualifiers. I think there's about a six-mile stretch where he could have jumped and and still be an orthodox jump zone, slightly wider than the FBI search zone, but basically, yes. Why do you think there's so much drama and discussion over the flight path, especially right now? It's, it's unusual. Uh, obviously, the guy who first came up with the alternative flight path uh, the one where they, they go from the the Canby, I'm sorry, from the Melee to the Canby uh, Vortex, is a very smart guy. I have a lot of respect for him. but I And his theory is based on a couple of anomalous things that you find in the transcripts and a few problems with the map. The map's not perfect either. I But I don't understand the passion. I don't think it helps anybody. It doesn't help. It doesn't help the people who have a suspect in mind, like Sheridan Peterson. It doesn't help people who think it was any other suspect. It doesn't make it doesn't make sense why it's so passionate. I think what people are looking for is an I don't want to say an excuse, but they're they're looking for some reason why Cooper wasn't found. Like why there the, we must be there must be something wrong on the input for there to be such an unusual output that, that Cooper was not, no trace of him was found on the ground. And why people are so passionate about it. I, people are passionate about this case and that's the best I can do to explain it. Yeah. I guess everyone's just trying to think outside of the box or make a flight path, fit a suspect or a landing zone. Yeah. There's a lot of iconoclasm is what the, what that's called. And uh, <laughs> that's the definition is that you're trying to be, Slightly outside the box. I'm trying to be a creative thinker. Iconoclasm. I don't believe I've heard that word before. I get that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I had read your book, I had not read Max Gunther's book. So it was interesting to have read your book first. And then, of course, immediately I got on eBay and like, okay, I got to get Max (laughs) Gunther's book now and read that one. When I had read your book, it was really the first time I had heard anyone take that other book seriously. It's always sort of been dismissed. Um, But then, of course, when I looked into it, you know, Max Gunther was a serious author and didn't print it as fiction. How come his book wasn't taken seriously really before? It's hard to say. I actually read the review of Gunther's book in the New York Times review of books, and they gave it, you know, just a very ho-hum, average, boring review of it, saying it's just a regular book, <laughs> which I guess it would be a, you're in the, you're in the New York Times review of books. I guess if you're an average book in that, uh, that publication, that's pretty good. I think what happened was, is that there were problems with the book. And I talk about it in my book. Gunther uh, was fed a lot of misinformation by the FBI. That's at least my opinion. The, there's a, an exchange in the book where the F, one of the FBI agents is, is telling Gunther, look, we can't even, we don't even know what color Cooper's tie is. We've, we, one guy said red, one guy said brown, one guy said black. We just can't trust eyewitnesses. Now, this was a test. 
the the FBI agent wanted Max Gunther to say, "Hey, no, it was a black tie. I know this." But there were other things too, and the all the problems with the book come from chapter two. And I looked at this book line by line, and I tried to source every line. And everything in chapter two is based on the research Max Gunther did with the FBI. But if you get basic facts wrong, no one's going to take it seriously. Now, I don't know how true that is at the time. I think D.B. Cooper has become, a, as the mystery continues and gets older, it becomes it becomes bigger. So at the time, it was just a guy that got away with a crime um, you know, 13 years ago or, or whenever, 14 years ago. Now it's this great American mystery. I agree with that. But I don't have... I don't have a, a good explanation as to why it wasn't taken seriously. Gunther was a journalist. He had been a journalist for a very long time. Uh, he had published a lot of nonfiction books. He had worked at magazines. And um, he had been on the New York Times bestseller list with another book on, on financial matters. So there's no reason why it should have been just poo-pooed. It should have been seriously investigated. And it's very clear to me that it was not. It would be... It kind of insane for Max Gunther to risk his reputation on a book that was BS. And it would have been it would have been a violation of his of his ethics. He actually wrote a book on how to write nonfiction books. And in this book on how to write nonfiction books, he talks about the things that you are that you that you should do and you should not do in regards to a nonfiction book. Making things up is a definite no in the nonfiction world. And Gunther says it very clearly in his book. What parts of the book do you think are real, and do you think any parts are made up? Well, and that's hard to hard to be certain because Gunther, as a journalist, ethically would be required to protect his source. Clara had chosen to not uh, go public. She had chosen to keep her identity a secret, which means that Gunther, as a journalist, would have to protect her identity by omitting or possibly even changing parts of her story to protect her identity. This is extremely problematic now as a researcher, because if information that we would use to identify her is either not there at all, or if it is there is misrepresented, it becomes very difficult to track her down. Do you believe he was in contact with D.B. Cooper? Yeah, I do. Uh, there was in the book, he is a, a, he has sent a letter purportedly from DB Cooper very very soon after the hijacking and he later takes a phone call from somebody who he described as not having an accent and being rather polite which again matches nicely with the with the Cooper that we know from uh, the eyewitness accounts and he has a short conversation with him I have looked at the letter in the book and I actually transcribed the letter and I put it into one of those statistical tools where it looks at word usage and grammar and the education level, vocabulary level. And I've compared the letters in the book, because this is actually one of the criticisms of, of the book, is that the letter itself gives the, the, the exact title of the article that Gunther wrote that Cooper became obsessed with. And anyway, I analyze it and they come from different authors. The person who wrote that D.B. Cooper letter is different from Max Gunther, and Max Gunther and D.B. Cooper are different from the Clara letter that I also analyzed. 
which tells me that there are three people who have written parts of that book and they would have had plenty of opportunity to come forward and say, hey, I wrote this letter for, for Max Gunther to create this book. It's a lie. Uh, go, eat, you know, cool it, guys. It's, it's BS. That's not the case. Uh, I, so I definitely believe that Gunther talked briefly with Cooper, though, as you find out in the book, Cooper never contacts him again. And Clara says that he had died uh, the, in the, the previous months before she contacted him. Who do you think is the D.B. Cooper in Max Gunther's book? Uh, and th- this was a couple of the guys who reviewed the book for me, guys that I trust, said that you really shouldn't go public until you pull the name, until you find somebody who matches this person. And while I believe we can find that person, it will be a lot of work. And it was a question as to to publish or whether to publish. And I decided to go ahead and publish. I can't say a name. I can't give a name. But we do know a lot about him. And thanks to, among other things, Tom Kay, we now know that he lived in um, Ashtagula and worked at RMI uh, right there on Lake Erie. Oh, so you think he did work at RMI, like Tom Kay was saying? Yeah, I, I just about had one of those eureka moments where I wanted to wander around and scream around and, and shout with exultation because of my voice. Of course I can't shout, (laughs) but we know in the Gunther book that at some point, uh, Dan Clare is the, uh, the, the pseudonym given to, uh, to the, the, to Dan Cooper. We know that he left the new England area. He left the tri-state area at some point to go work in industrial chemicals outside of New York. And it's always been a mystery to me as to where that could have been. And essentially, we found out that there's only one place where you get that um, that odd combination of titanium salts and all of that, that that Kay talks about in your podcast, and it was at that that place in Ashtagula. Are you, are you kidding me? That's incredible. That's fantastic. They gave me – I was looking at um, whether we can use the census to try to track them down at that point. I don't think we can, but – uh, we'll have to see, but that was that was a fantastic bit of information. I'm actually trying to create a complete biography of this guy without knowing who he is, in the hopes that somebody else, some family member, will recognize him and uh, come forward. Yeah, you got to wonder why that hasn't happened yet in the first place. Fifty years. I don't think they knew. So the if when we all want Cooper to be this heroic character. We all want him to be a Robin Hood or, as, as Tom K. talked about, just a regular guy who got into a tight situation. The reality right. might be a little less romantic. It sounds like whoever Dan Cooper was, he had worked in an industry. He may have had a family, but he, had, he didn't have a good marriage. And that marriage fell apart, and he left his family. He absconded a year or two before the hijacking. So he abandoned his family. He abandoned his children. And he abandoned his job. These are not um, these are not brave things to do. And if you are his kids, you would not look at this person as being heroic. Matter of fact, you may never want to see him again. And I think that's what happened: is that oh, your father left us, your father abandoned us, and that's it. That's what happened to him, and forget about him. And that's why they've never come forward. There's a very clear motivation for why that didn't happen. One more thing about uh, Max Gunther. I spoke to an anonymous army analyst, and he's looking into 
William Smith and and Dan Clare. But you don't uh, you don't think it's William Smith, do you? Uh, I I don't. But uh, I want to I want to show I've I actually um, worked with this person before he went public, and I'll I'll tell you what I told him is that that this person is outside of the hypothesis. So there's a very specific hypothesis, which is that Max Gunther talked to this woman who knew the real Dan Cooper and that this Dan Cooper worked in industrial chemicals and he had a very specific background. Now, I, I mentioned in my book, I named one person, a Dan Clare, born 1919, just as an example for how we could use forensic genealogy to find out who the real Dan Cooper was. Well, this analyst took a second look at Dan Clare and said there are these connections that um, that, that connect him with uh, the the Smith character, in that they have other reasons why they could be Dan Cooper. There's there's other other ways to associate them with a the case. My problem is that it, it lies outside the uh, hypothesis, and you cannot use the output to adjust the input. So, if you say our input is th- this list of requirements that Gunther gives us, you get a list of people, and then you eliminate those people for various reasons. If you take one of those people that you've eliminated and you use them to change the way that you process the data, you're creating what's called a petitio principi. You're doing circular reasoning. And that is a logical fallacy. And and from logical fallacies, you can get any answer you want. So he lies outside the hypothesis. Could he be D.B. Cooper? Possibly. I don't happen to believe so. Uh, I don't think that Cooper worked for a railroad yard. I don't think railroad workers would be wearing ties around the garbage and stuff like that that they're that they're manhandling into and out of cars. So I think that's very unlikely. But it's it it's possible, and some of his some of the connections he makes are interesting. But as you know, there are a lot of circumstantial um, circumstantial evidence for a variety of suspects, which are very interesting. But not all these people can be Dan Cooper. That's true. Not not all 40 serious suspects could probably be Dan Cooper. Do you see, you were talking about the tie, do you see any issues with Tom K's analysis of the tie? The only, I, I really don't. I really don't. And uh, there's, <clears throat> no one would have picked up this tie. I think he's right when he says that this tie was not picked up at a, at a, at a five and dime. Nobody would have grabbed this tie uh, this this tie would have had to have been had to belong to Cooper. Uh, we know that Richard McCoy, when he did his copycat hijacking, that he dressed up as a clown. He had a tie, he had a suit, but these were they were brightly colored. They were meant to distract people from his actual physical appearance. Whereas Cooper went as basically as himself. He didn't go through any effort to hide his identity other than wearing sunglasses and not leaving fingerprints. And not, and not leaving trace evidence. He he didn't care if uh, one of the stewardesses would, could recognize him because he never intended to meet them again in his life. So he didn't go through any effort to hide his identity. It, and in my mind, that means that he just wore what he always wore. He was always comfortable in a suit. That's what he wore. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, if you didn't wear a suit on a regular basis, it would be odd to choose to wear a suit to hijack an airplane. You don't... And, there's there's other things involved. I mean, it is it, it is a crime by somebody who's not a criminal. 
So there's there are there's just these anomalous things about this crime because Cooper was just not a hardened criminal. This is not what he did. This is not what his career was. And I, I think that's why we get some of these unusual circumstances like him, you know, going in in dress shoes and a suit and tie and, and committing an act of robbery. Do you think this was the only crime Cooper ever committed? I was on another radio show and they they asked me a question. But one of the co-hosts of that that radio show was a forensic psychologist. She was actually one of the top forensic psychologists in California which was a very, I mean, that was a fantastic opportunity because she said that this Cooper, whoever he was, would have been a juvenile delinquent. He would have had some problems in middle school and some problems in high school, truancy, delinquency, uh, maybe some breaking and entering, some some minor stuff like that uh, to, to have the right, I guess, psychology, the right frame of mind to be able to think about committing a crime like this. It's just, it's just a necessity. So whereas I don't believe he was a hardened criminal, he wasn't a career criminal, did he get into trouble? I, I would have to agree with her. I, I'm sure he did. Why does she assume he was a juvenile delinquent? Uh, she's a profiler, so she profiles criminals. And I was, I was fairly certain, based on the description in Max Gunther's book, that he had had a rather placid and, uh, dare I say, boring high school, but, or, um, you know, education, I guess. However, if he was isolated and he was lonely and if he was, you know, in, in high school and he wasn't getting the, um, you know, he wasn't in with the ladies, then he would lash out in some way. And it just, it just makes sense. Uh, the thing is, I, I'm not an expert on these matters, but I don't believe that you should, automatically disagree with one of the foremost experts in the state of California in regards to criminal profiling. And it actually would help uh, to have this information in case somebody, though the person who went to high school with this guy would also be 90 years old or more. So they're probably not around, but it would help identify uh, who Cooper was. So it's something that needs to be included in the profile. That's true. It just seems like a very difficult case to profile seeing as there's very little known about D.B. Cooper. From the point of view of an unsolved skyjacking, yes. But from the point of view of middle-aged men who commit crimes late in life without any prior criminal history, there is data, there is information on that. Again, when it comes to criminal profiling, um, it's it's an educated guess. We call it swag, uh, a scientific wild-ass guess. And I would say that it's definitely swag in this case, but it, it's, you include it, you include it in your profile because there's a probability greater than 50% that it's true. And you have to take it at that. If D.B. Cooper worked in industrial chemicals and wore a tie to work on a regular basis, what do you think his motivation was for skyjacking? And this is where I part ways with Tom K. Tom K. in your podcast said that he got that he, he got into a pinch. Either he had some giant bill to pay or he, he got on the wrong side. Of, yeah. Something weird happened. I happen to not believe that. From just reading Max Gunther's book, and I take, I take this part of the story at face value, 
Dan Cooper left his wife, he left his children, he left his life behind, and he he basically went on the road and became a transient. And at the end of it, he was still an educated guy. So he gets into Los Angeles. He is working um, as a janitor, basically, as a Mr. Fix-It, under the table for very low wages. He is hanging out with people he doesn't necessarily like. He doesn't. He's not a heavy drinker. He's not a heavy smoker. He's not a partier. He's not a member of the underclass. And excuse me for for using that phrase. Um, but these aren't. These just are not culturally his people. And he gets frustrated. And you see that in the book that this is not the way he wanted. This is not the freedom that he thought it would be. And he has all the time in the world to think about it. And he decides that what he needs is money. Because that's what his life has been about, is it's been about his career, and, and a career is about getting money. And this happened to be the way to do it. Um, there's also some element of the male midlife crisis that this, he was a, a paratrooper, and that was the greatest time of his life. That was the greatest accomplishment of his life, was serving in World War II with the Airborne. I actually tend to think that he did the combat jump in Operation Market Garden. That would be the most logical place for him to be. Uh, given the information that we have in the book. So he was also very proud of his Cochrane boots, and he was proud of, of, of being a paratrooper. That was, that was just the, the, his, his self-identity. And we know this because he shows up in these 302s wearing Cochrane boots. Cochrane boots are the, 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 the boots that uh, paratroopers wear. My father actually has a pair uh, himself, so I've seen them. And it was the motivation. Like this was his chance to relive his youth as odd as it might seem. It's a, it's an interesting motivation. I mean, I think it, if we found out who DB Cooper was tomorrow, I think the motivation is going to be unique. It's not going to be something that, Oh yeah, that's of course that's why. Um, I think it's going to be something pretty interesting. Well, in any other instance, he would have gotten caught. If he needed $200,000 to make a cash payment on something, guess what? Bankers notice that. If somebody deposits um, $100,000 in $20 bills or deposits $50,000 in $20 bills, and I don't care if it's 1971 or 1991 or 2020, the banker is going to take note of that. That is an unusual circumstance. So if Cooper had needed that to pay off a mobster or something like that, uh, that money would have showed up somewhere else and he would have gotten caught because, you know, the, the mobster, the money man, then you have the mobster himself. And from the mobster, you find out who Dan Cooper is. It's not that difficult. So any big event motivation like that would have resulted in his capture. So what did he do with the money? Well, it appears as though he lost it. Now, I have gone back and forth on this. I <clears throat> Because we know that he lost some of the money. Some of the money shows up on Tina Bar. In Gunther's book, Gunther says that, that Cooper lost half the money. And if you read the description, it doesn't make sense how he could have lost half the money. The, and I have gone through a lot of um, speculation as to figure out exactly how that worked. And I don't like to speculate in this case, by the way. I, I am very aware of confirmation bias and rationalizations and... I don't like being a suspect peddler. I like being a researcher. And as a researcher, I believe I'm led to this conclusion, but I'm not married to it. If tomorrow Sheridan Peterson produced a $20 bill that was taken in ransom 
on on flight 350, I or 305, 100% would believe it. But I don't think that's the case because Sharon Peterson's not DB Cooper. So, given that, and this is again speculation, and I hate doing it. I think Cooper had two containers. Cooper put half the money in one bag that he brought on board specifically for this. And the other half, and we have witnesses that say they saw it, a burlap bag. It's been described as being either green or yellow or gray, because again, eyewitness testimony is terrible. Yeah, I've also seen it described as a brown paper sack. Or a green paper bag or something like that. It's the size of a suitcase or it's the size of a thing that you have a donut in. I don't know. But it exists in the Gunther book too. And in this book, it's a ca- it's a green canvas bag. So I believe it that he had an extra bag and that he put some of the money in there. And that was the bag that uh, Clara saw. And at the other half of the money, again, taking into account the eyewitness testimony that, uh, that Tina Mucklow saw was the bank bag and that he was stuck trying to use both because he didn't have a big enough bag. So one bag goes on one hip. The other bag goes on the other. And the fact that he had to use paracord and tie it around his body um, may have been a contributing factor as to why he lost it. But I'm not 100% sure because, again, if you're orthodox about where he landed, then he should have and the money should not be in the Columbia. So it's very difficult. This is an interesting part of the book, and I, I don't know if it's true or not. And again, I hate speculation, so I hate talking about it, but here it is. Gunther says that LeClaire, or uh, Cooper, walked upstream, which is a very unusual thing to do. A military survival expert would go downstream, unless you're in the middle of the, of the savannah. You always go downstream to get to civilization. He goes upstream, which I would take as a way of avoiding capture. He is doing something that's not expected, going deeper into the wilderness. And then you read the book, and he makes a turn to the south. If Cooper lands, say, again, speculation, I don't know where he landed, on the east fork of the Lewis River, and he travels upstream, then he turns south, travels for a few hours, and again, he's hurt, so he's not moving very fast, but he has all day to do it. He ends up in the Washigal watershed. From there... He buries the money. As we know from the book, the money is disturbed by animals. Animals, he left, he had food in the bags and the animals got into the, into the bags. And we know that these get dragged off. This is where the story starts to fall apart. But if an animal grabs that bag and, and takes it and he can't find it, it's in the Washougal watershed and it goes down. Now, I'm fully aware Tom K says that's impossible. But here's the issue. Tom K. did not do his research during a flood. During the spring floods, and I've seen videos of it, and I intend at some point to go out there and witness it for myself, you see large trees being dragged down the river because there's so much water because of the snowfall. That's how spring floods are. It's, it's not like the standard slow-moving river that he tested it. So it's a possibility. Not a great answer, but I tend to think he lost half the money, the other half he was able to find, and he was able to, over a period of time, spend it or launder it, and it became part of his bank balance. So how do you think that money ended up on Tina Barr? The simplest answer, and this is, this is why I hesitate to be so orthodox in my beliefs about where the jump zone is, is that 
Cooper, when he pulled the ripcord, lost the money in the jump. The he the parachute grabs him, and because he didn't tie the money properly to his waist, it comes flying off, lands in the Columbia. Cooper lands somewhere in Vancouver, and that's that. The money in my mind definitely came to the Tina Bar via the dredge. We have Dorwin Schroeder, who was the FBI agent on, you know, on the scene when they were trying to dig this money up, says that he found shards three feet deep. And I take him at face value. He's a smart guy. If that's the case, the only way for that money to get shredded up like that and have a large field of shards of cash is if it went through a dredge and was just dumped on there. It's not a sexy explanation. It's not fun. But I think that's what likely happened. Which You go backwards from there. So it was the dredge. It had to be in the river. If it's in the river, it had to come in from, from downstream of where the, where the dredge material was taken. And either the money lands in the Columbia, like I would like to think, or it just happens to be near a freshet and gets taken in the spring floods uh, into, into the Columbia, and then it gets lost in, into the, uh, the river bottom. That's all very speculative, but it, there is a mechanical means in there, but otherwise it's natural means. The money just is there at Tina Bar. Cooper didn't get to spend it. He would not have put it there. He lost that, that part of the money. But there's otherwise no mystery about it. There's no uh, mysterious stranger trying to bury the money because he's he doesn't want to get caught by the FBI uh, as as somebody helping out a a felon. I think he just he just lost the money somehow. If if he lost half the money in the jump, even if he let's say he pulled his ripcord at you know four thousand feet, how much that money would have gone flying? Don't you think more of it would have been found? No, because when it goes through the dredge, so uh, let's look at it from this point of view. You have a bag of money. It is in the river bottom. And I've, I've seen descriptions of this river bottom. It's basically you can imagine a desert where the dunes are moving back and forth. Underneath the river, these dunes are sandbars that are moving with, with the river flow. The money gets into the into the the spoils or into this the river bottom. It stays there. It's wet. It's compacted. It's in a bag. It's in an anaerobic environment. So you're so everything is going to be pretty well preserved at that point. It gets hit by a dredge. This dredge just destroys it, throws it up on the beach. And the one chunk, the, the, the core chunk in the middle, is what ends up being found, those three bundles. But I think of it as just a giant soggy mess that goes into the dredge and you get out of it, the core in the middle, everything else washes away. It's something, it's an experiment that we wanted to do. We've had all these TV shows talk to other members of the forum and, and myself as well. And one of the things that we tell them is that there's experiments that we want to do. We want to see what a dredge does to a bag of, a bag of uh, paper. With the bag of money, ideally, but no one's going to throw ten thousand dollars away like that. So hopefully, it'd be <laughs> just uh, you know a bag of rag paper. Nobody wants to do these experiments. Nobody wants to go through the cost. But it would tell us definitively whether or not it's even plausible. That brings up a good question. If you had unlimited funds, what tests would you do? 
in the case? What forensic tests haven't been done that you think should be done? Oh, I got a list of them. One, obviously that dredge. You take <laughs> you take money, throw it through a dredge, see what happens. Or you take fake bills or, you know, you get something from some some other highly inflated nation where the, the money is not as valuable. You do that. Number two, you throw a bag of money in the Columbia and see how fast it moves along the bottom. Number three, you see whether or not the Washougal, anything in the Washougal watershed during the spring floods uh, can carry away a bag like that. Number four, you throw away a rescue Randy out of a helicopter and you have it rigged so the parachute, you know, is, is uh, pulled at a certain point and see whether or not a handmade knot or, you know, a, the way we think Cooper attached the money to himself, whether that comes flying off. Um, I actually calculated at one point the, the forces on the bag of money at the time of the, pair, uh, of the canopy, basically of the, of the canopy deployal. And the pressures on this bag are very, very high. And I doubt whether uh, some handmade knots from, uh, from paracord are going to be able to hold it to the rig. But that's an experiment you do. You find a paratrooper, you give him a bunch of paracord, say, attach this to your harness so that you don't lose it when you pull the ripcord and see what happens. Oh, boy, what, what other ones did I have? We'll call that it for now. The other thing, the one thing that we're waiting on is, is I know Tom has, Tom K has bills that are buried in sand that he got from Tina Barr and to see how those move and change over time. That will take. That will take some time to, to see because we're trying to figure out where those rounded edges came from and how the the money um, basically disintegrated. So we, we're running a few experiments ourselves, but those are the big ones in my mind is to see exactly where the money has to go into the Columbia for for the effects that we see at the Tina Bar. Yeah, that the, the Tina Bar find is baffling. It seems nobody has a real good explanation for that, at least at this point in time. It's such a highly unlikely event. It's so improbable that you're just going to have, it's one of those miracles that happen. You know, when they say there's a one in a million chance of something happening, well, one in a million chance things happen all the time. It's, it's miraculous, yes, but these, these kinds of miracles happen a lot. Unfortunately, that doesn't help explain why they happened, or it doesn't give us an idea of how the money got to Tina Barr, but it just did. It's just what happened. And then you don't think Cooper had any difficulty spending the rest of the money? Oh, no, not at all. As long as you don't spend it all in one place, buying a sports car, buying a house, or you know, taking $100,000 to a, to a casino at one time, it's fine. They're $20 bills. They're easy to spend. This was his retirement account. So nobody was looking for this money. This is something that they don't talk about. They gave these packets to the, the banks in the Pacific Northwest that had the serial numbers of the bills. They weren't in order. So even if you had a Cooper bill and you're looking at this book, you would get frustrated because you're trying, you're digging around trying to find this specific serial number in a book that, that isn't in numerical order. There's no way to find it. You would just give up. Uh, if you had, if you, and if you had like a stack of them to test, there's no way. Nobody was looking for this stuff. You would give up immediately. I've talked to people about this who aren't super into the case who say, well, they never found any of the money, so he must have died. 
And I'm like, well, do you know how they would check to see if the money was spent? They just had a list of random serial numbers to check against 20s. There's no way every single bank teller did that for years. It'd be impossible. No, and they had they didn't have a motivation either. If you're a bank teller, your job is, you know, you punch the clock, you go in, you do your job, you go out. If something suspicious comes in, yeah, you report it. But otherwise, no, you don't have time for that. Nobody has time for that. No, reading every serial number on a $20 bill, there's not a chance. And how many $20 bills does a bank take in in a day in 1971? It's huge. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had millions of dollars in 20s at every bank. No way. There's no way. The other theory I get from from people who are very casually uh, fans of D.B. Cooper is he never got out of the airplane and was just hiding in it when it landed in Reno. No. I mean, that's that's kind of cute. But there's just not many good places to hide the 737. My co-author on the book was my father, and my father was a pilot for United Airlines after he got out of the Air Force. He was a very good technical source. There is not a place to hide a body on a 737 where you're not going to be super obvious. There's just nowhere to go. As soon as they open up the plane and open up a few compartments, they've checked everywhere. There's just... I've, I've heard people say that there's a, 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 a compartment where the stairs is that, it, that you can fit a body into, and it's just not true. You couldn't, you couldn't get in there when the airplane was in flight, and they checked it anyway from what I've, what I've been told. is The FBI did a fantastic job of searching the aircraft, but it doesn't matter. You could have done a very poor job of searching the aircraft. They had dogs, and dogs can smell people, and there's, there's no way. There's no way he stayed on the aircraft. He jumped. Oh, yeah. I, I agree. There's just no way. That would have been the easiest way to find him. <laughs> and he jumped. And, and we know this, too. He, he was very comfortable putting on a parachute. He put that thing right on. This is, by the way, another experiment that I would like to do. Is I own an NB-6 and an NB-8 rig, which was the rig that we think that Cooper used. My father, again, trained paratrooper. Never had he had never seen a Navy rig in his life. He put it on in 20 seconds, easy, and that includes all the adjustments. It took me about eight minutes, and I wear harnesses for my job. So, if you walk around and you you have people randomly try on this rig, it it takes a bit of time for a person not not familiar with par- parachutes to put it on. And I think that's very indicative of who Cooper was. He put on the 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 parachute. He made his adjustments in the harness very, very quickly, very, very comfortably. So he was absolutely 100% comfortable with the idea of putting on a on a parachute, which means he was 100% comfortable with the idea of jumping out of an aircraft wearing a parachute. I agree 100%. Tina Mucklow said she saw him briefly, and I believe the quote was, it looked like he had put one on many times before. And we even know that he might have found the card. This is in Tussauds' book, where he suggests that, that Mucklow saw him check the card, the packing card, on the harness. Now, I, I have this, the harness, one of the harnesses that I have is mint. It has a packing card in it. It was packed in 1971. I have not found the card yet. And I was told by the seller that it's in there. Now, I'm afraid to take apart the, the parachute too much because I don't want to have to repack a parachute. 
but I don't know where it is. If uh, if it's not in the parachute compartment itself, I don't know where it could be. Now, I, my father showed me how he would check a parachute, a parachute. And it doesn't involve looking at the packing card, but it does involve checking a couple of things that involve moving flaps here and there and, and checking to make sure things are in place. And he does it very quickly. And I think that's actually what Cooper did. But if he found the packing card on this, it would it would mean quite a bit. It would mean that... Uh, he was more than just a paratrooper. That he was somebody who, who rigged these these pieces of equipment. And that would change our perspectives on Cooper completely. Which is why I'm very skeptical of what Tussaud wrote. Now I got to ask you, why do you have those two shoots? Why not? This is this is embarrassing. So I I bought the parachute. I didn't. Okay, there's a couple of anecdotes here. Number one is I had a producer contact me. He wanted to do a program on DB Cooper, and I lied and I said I had one of these <laughs> these these rigs just to get on the damn television show. So immediately you think, okay, it sounds like this is happening. I have to go out and buy one of these rigs, and it doesn't matter what the cost is. This is how I'm getting on TV. It's how I'm going to promote my book. So I had to buy it then. I did not get a very good rig. That that first rig not have a parachute, um, didn't have a parachute in it. Uh, wasn't complete. And I thought, well, I already own one. Why don't I buy a good one? And at, at the very least, I'll have a nice one that I can use at speaking events, which I've never done a speaking event, so I don't know what I was thinking. But it was, the price was also really good. It was half the price of the other of, of the other rig, and. I did get to do some experiments with it. Not only did I get to see how my dad, you know, analyzes a, a harness, I found out that you can put one of the mysteries of the case, of course, how did he attach the reserve parachute because there's no D-clips on it? Well, turns out they, uh, you, you can clip them right on your hip uh, very, very easily. So mystery solved. With a, even with a, a harness that doesn't have D-rings for a reserve parachute, you can clip it on your hip and at least have a reserve parachute. Would it work? Maybe would it be very very painful if you had to use it. Oh yeah, for sure. Not recommended, but it's possible. That's pretty cool. But you didn't end up doing that show. No, the the funding fell through at the last moment, and that's not the first time it's happened. Though over the last, oh, I published the book almost three years ago now. I've had, I think, four potential appearances on television, and every last one of them has fallen through. And I, I can understand why. Uh, I know the Expedition Unknown TV show, they bumped a number of us just so uh, Josh Gates could jump out of an aircraft in Reno. That's just how TV is. Yeah, most most TV shows that cover it show the host jumping out of an airplane. And that's that's fun, but there's some real science to do with this, with this too. And uh, I've been very hopeful to get one of – because science-based stuff is huge right now on television. Everyone – wants to be the next Neil deGrasse Tyson, but nobody wants to produce a program based on the science of this case, which is very frustrating, but I understand it's a very tough business too, trying to sell a TV show. Why don't you produce your own TV show? (laughs) I have thought about it. I have a friend of mine who is a filmmaker and he doesn't want to do a documentary, but he has the equipment. And I told him it would be really fun. And I had... Uh, I had written scripts for a, a D.B. Cooper documentary, but 
The problem is always the funding. Uh, this case is a lot of fun to do, and I make okay revenue from the book, at least enough to, to pay for the, the parachute harnesses and the other crap that I've gotten over the years with this case. But it doesn't. Ha- I don't have enough money to spend twenty thousand dollars on an HD camera and and the other money for the other experts that you need. Even a cheap documentary, I've been told, would cost fifty thousand dollars, and I don't have that kind of funding. Yeah, that's a little outside my range, also. Now the thing is, the I I don't have high aspirations here. I could, and I I'm not going to give up on it because I think you can do a YouTube series, and maybe you're aware of P- Safe Cracking PLF. Who is who did a, a actually a fairly watchable YouTube documentary on his own thoughts on this? So there's a chance in the future that I'll find a way to do it, but uh, to do a feature documentary that's just not going to happen for a while. Do you think this case will be solved? So now I am I am more certain than ever. So I'm I'm like 95% confident that Max Gunther talked to the real Dan Cooper. I'm about 90% confident that we can use the information in the book to find somebody who matches with, with Gunther's story. Whether we can confirm that he was Cooper or not, that would be very difficult. It'd be nice to have a family member come forward. Am I confident that we'll get a name? I have approximately 3,000 names to go through. And it's very difficult because a lot of these obituaries, they aren't online. So you try to handle one or two a week and eliminate a guy. It's very, very slow work. And I could be looking in the wrong area anyway. But the tools will get better with time. So every 10 years, another one of the censuses is released. And this is how I'm, this is the genealogy research that I'm doing. So every 10 years, so in 2022, I'm going to get another census. Uh, this should be the 1940 census or 1950 census. It's, it'll be the 1950 census. And I'll be able to eliminate about half the, half the people on my list. Uh, just with that census. So by 2050, assuming I'm still around, I should have only a handful of people to look at. And if everything gets digitized, so if more newspapers get digitized, more of these obituaries get digitized, more of the World War II records, if they get digitized and you can search them uh, by by key terms, I should have the name by the end of my life, hopefully sooner. But I 100% believe that I will have an answer as to whether or not the Gunther hypothesis is true. And if I have a name, then I get to go to my grave knowing that I solved the case. If there is no name, the Gunther hypothesis is incorrect, and hopefully somebody else finds Cooper. But I, I'm very confident in my string, and I'm going to pull it until the day I die. <laughs> until the day I die. Please don't make me wait until 2050. I'm working on it. <laughs> I have spreadsheets if you want them. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll take a look at those, actually. <laughs> Do you think he chose the name Dan Cooper for any reason? Specifically, I'm thinking the comic book. Right, the comic book. And I, <clears throat> this is another one of those expenses that you think, why am I buying a French foreign language comic book from the 1960s? What am I doing with my life? I don't speak French. I took Spanish in high school. I took sign language in college. I think there is a connection. Again, going back to my source, the Max Gunther book, according to Max, he was born French-Canadian. That is an interesting tidbit because the, uh, the comic book, Dan Cooper, was written in French. I don't know how popular it was in French Canada, 
But my suspect was born in French Canada. My suspect would have had family uh, in Canada that he would have visited. He also read weird things. He read True Magazine, which is where he, he ran and he encountered Max Gunther's articles. Uh, True Magazine is, um, not to get profane, but it, it was sort of the uh, tits, tigers, and tomahawks. All the stories are about, um, you know, these uber-masculine men and these 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 super sexy women and uh, the one, one of them, I have a, a giant pile of these magazines and there's always things about dog fights and football teams. And it's just uber masculinity. If he was reading that, if that was what he read as a middle-aged adult, it's not unlikely that he was, he was also reading these comic books about this superhero uh, pilot, paratrooper, uh, detective extraordinaire, the, from what I can at least translate, this is a very, um, I mean, it's juvenile, but it's, ad, you know, it's late adolescent. It's kind of the, the stuff men, you know, in their, in their teens, you really get into. And if he was having a midlife crisis, I would not be shocked. The thing is, Dan, the, the name Dan, very common. The surname Cooper, very common. It could just be a coincidence. I don't want it to be a coincidence. <laughs> no, we all want yeah, I, I, I do too. And I would love it if um, he was just a guy who read all this ridiculous stuff and maybe that was a source of, of this crime. So you have a Dan Cooper comic, a bunch of true magazines, two parachutes. What other Cooper memorabilia do you have that you're not telling us about? Okay, so I have, I have a reserve container. I have a number of parachutes, uh, the reserve parachutes. I wanted to see whether or not you could fit money in with a reserve container. You can't. doesn't matter what parachute you have. I have – I actually had to go through and get posters of the map. Uh, so I have a giant poster of the map here, uh, the True Magazines. Boy, what else do I have? I have a large library now of all these books, and some of them are very expensive. And some of these books cost over $100 to get physical copies. And me being me, I had to get autographed first editions. So I have that, which is complete. And not to mention, I have uh, just a ton of ton of geographical maps. I have um, sectionals, aviation maps, and pretty much anything that you might need for a Cooper documentary. If you're listening, producers of the world, I have. <laughs> Give me a call. Okay, you said something really interesting there. You tried to fit the money into a reserve container? That was so. There's there's speculation because Cooper uh, Cooper offered money. He actually took money out of the bag and he offered it to the stewardesses. The problem with the bank bag is it's asymmetrical, right? You have a twenty pound thing that you have to hang from your body. You don't want to put it between your legs if you're a guy for you know biological reasons. So you're going to put it to one side or the other. Um, if he's a paratrooper. He would want to, he want the the load distributed as evenly across the harness as possible. If you put money into the reserve container, and we know from eyewitness accounts, he was either thinking about doing that or trying to do that. Depends on how you interpret Mucklow's statements in her her three hundred two. Uh, it looks like he was he, he was trying to do that. Well, if you can fit you know a few bills here, a few bills there, then you can start to take money out and, and distribute the load 
maybe that's how the money got to Tina Barr. Again, we're working on a big mystery with that. Uh, so you take a reserve container, you throw a parachute in there, and you see if you can't shove some money in there too without opening up um, you know, the, the reserve container itself because the pa- parachute pops out. You, you can't get them back in. I mean, I guess you can. There are people who do that for a living, but I certainly can't. And the short answer is, no, you can't. You can't put any – might get a packet in there, but that, that packet's going to fall out uh, right away. So he didn't cut up the the reserve chute and stuff a bunch of money in there? I don't think so. I mean, he, he could have, but it's a lot of material. No, people don't understand how big these parachutes are. If a parachute was six or seven feet in diameter, you can fold it up, wrap half the money in there, and – you know, you tie it up with a, um, with a paracord and attach it to your harness, and it, it's great. You do a 24-foot parachute, and it fills a room, and you're trying to bend it and fold it and roll it, and it becomes a giant mess, and you just give up on it. Because I think what happened with Cooper is he had that other reserve container that he opened. He grabbed some cordage, and I think he realized right away that whatever he had planned for it wasn't going to work. That's interesting. I've never heard anyone try and do something like that before. There's a lot of stuff in this case where you think, just try it. Uh, how do you attach money to yourself? You know what? You get a bank bag, you fill it with a bunch of rag paper, and you, you, you get a bunch of paracord because you can buy this stuff super cheap at Menards, and you just do it. Uh, how do you get this reserve container on um, a parachute harness with no D-rings? Well, you, you go on the drop zone and they're talking for thousands of posts about how this is impossible. You get a rig, you get a reserve container, and, and guess what? It snaps right on. Boom, you're done. Mystery solved. It just clips on. Speaking of the drop zone, are you happy to see that that's been reopened? That's a tough one. I'm glad it's there's some fantastic stuff in here. Here's the problem with the internet is people produce so much content that there's no one, there's no gatekeeper, there's no archivist who's taking this stuff and, and chopping it up and turning it into useful things. So the Drop Zone Forum, there's 50,000 posts on there. 40, 48,000 of them are complete garbage. It'd be nice to take those 2,000 great posts and turn them into something that's, that's a good reference, but no one's doing that. It's reopened and... Uh, um, you have people who are, again, suspect peddlers, and I know I'm one of them. I, I hate that, but I am one of them, who are going to take over take over the, the thread and then just constantly always be pushing their one suspect and their one belief, confirmation bias, uh, viewpoint bias, whatever you want to call it, and pushing one simple narrative rather than a group of researchers, which is what it should be, a group of researchers looking at the mysteries of the case and coming to conclusions. I think... All the conclusions that you can draw from the drop zone, which are all of the questions regarding the parachute and the jump itself, have basically been answered by the skydivers themselves. So I don't see a purpose to it. I'm glad it's open. I'm glad guys are talking about the case. I guess it comes to that, too. The more people talk about the case, the better off we all are. The more people get involved, the more likely we are to get um, those TV shows or podcasts like this. The more publicity we get, the more likely we can solve the case. Are there any suspects other than your own that you find really interesting or even plausible? Uh, of course. Obviously, Sheridan Peterson is one, and I have thought about Sheridan Peterson a lot in my life, a lot more than I should, about uh, just some random guy that I've never met. And 
he is he is such an interesting person, and his life history is very very interesting and fascinating. And um, you know his time in Vietnam, his um, his other experiences. I mean, the guy was the guy was basically James Bond without the spine. He is really interesting. Uh, Gossett is another guy. Um, I know Bruce Bruce Smith really likes the idea that this was a special ops guy from Vietnam and Gossett would fit that bill. Others, uh, not so much. Uh, I've never seen a compelling case made for any other suspects. And none of them look right. I mean, Kenny Christensen doesn't look right. Robert Rackstraw doesn't look right. Uh, Richard McCoy is right out. I mean, they <laughs> every one of the witnesses says it's not Richard McCoy. And I know we had a big production on Richard McCoy recently, and I actually talked to one of the producers, and I said, I can eliminate Richard McCoy as a suspect in in 30 seconds. Yeah, he didn't, Richard McCoy jumped near Provo, where he lived. He would not have jumped somewhere where he didn't live. Number two is he didn't have a lot of time. He had less than 24 hours to get to the Pacific Northwest, jump, escape out of who knows where, get a plane ticket, and then get into Las Vegas and then drive home. Couldn't have been done. Uh, also, the, the particles in the tie eliminate him. Also, the fact that uh, he was never seen wearing that kind of tie. He wore broad style ties. He couldn't have gotten the – there's no – yeah. There's no way it could have been McCoy. All of the evidence that goes against him, they still went along with uh, with their production. It's very, very frustrating. I I have a list of suspects. I mean, I, I profile all these suspects in my book. Not all of them. Not all 40 of them. But a lot of them, every new one that comes around, it's just – you know, more debunking. It couldn't be this guy because of X, Y, and Z. I really do like that in your book. Uh, and then also in Bruce Smith's book, also, you both go into other suspects. Here's why, here's some of the information about this guy. Here's why he could have done it. Here's why he couldn't have done it. Uh, I really enjoy that. One of the things I'd, I'd like to point out whenever I can is one of the people on the website is uh, Mel Wilson's daughter. Now, Mel Wilson is a missing person. He also absconded from his – he actually uh, escaped justice. You know, he was going in for um, a hearing of some kind of court hearing, and he just disappeared. But he, he left behind a family, and his daughter wants to find out what happened to him. I mean, that's, that is a mystery that has to be taken seriously, and that's why I wanted to put his story in the book. Same thing with um, Dick Lepsey, is He left the family behind. He left children behind. He left a wife behind. And regardless of – whether or not I think he was Cooper, that's another mystery that I think deserves a look, deserves to get solved. Yeah, definitely. Other than uh, Finding D.B. Cooper, uh, are there any other books that you think people should check out? Or obviously Max Gunther's book as well. D.B. Cooper, The Real Story. Yeah, well, D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened. Uh, obviously, I'm more than happy to sell my book, uh, D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead. I enjoyed Bruce Smith's book, and I um, helped with one of the editions. I helped edit it because I, I do my own editing. I'm very experienced as a book editor. Uh, I don't want to speak ill of anybody else's book, but they're all uh, they're all suspect peddlers. So you hate to promote something like The Last Outlaw, the one on Robert Rackstraw by Colbert, or is it Colbert? Colbert. It's a fantastic book. Rackstraw is a very interesting criminal, but he's not D.B. Cooper. So I don't want to recommend people read a book that whose conclusions are incorrect. 
I'm going to do so anyway. It is a fantastic book. The same thing on Richard McCoy. So you have um, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy by Callum and Rhodes. That is a, a great book. It looks into the Richard McCoy hijacking and Richard McCoy's you know, personal situation in great detail. Very well done. And I recommend it only other, other than to say this is not D.B. Cooper. So just keep that in your mind. That's one I have not read yet. I haven't found a copy cheap enough that I was willing to buy it. Yeah, I think they're about 40, 50 bucks on the low end. It was it was a privately published book in the 1980s, I believe. So it it's a tough one to get. Have you read Ha 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 by DB Cooper? I've read I haven't read the whole thing. I've read parts of it. Um it gets, to in my mind it gets kind of old because from the start it's not a real you know, it's not a real Cooper suspect. It's just um a way to make money off the case. <laughs> But it is it is it is it is very well written, and I'll probably finish it um, sometime this summer. It, my my copy, I spent over a hundred dollars getting that copy, and of course, a year later, uh, they cost about forty dollars because a, a, a small cache of them has been found, and they're selling on Amazon for forty bucks. So I was hesitant to read it when it was a hundred dollars. Now that there's so many copies, I'm going to read mine. I was lucky enough. Uh, Brian Woodruff gave me a copy of it. Uh, I've only skimmed um, through it, but I haven't. I haven't thoroughly gone through it yet, but there's some sort of cryptic puzzle in there that um, Brian's been trying to crack for a while. Yeah, and I, I something that they want the, the the rumor is that you'll get some of the proceeds from the book if you solve this thing. And I don't know how true that is. That is a Bruce Smith question. That's definitely not a me question. <laughs> um, do you have any plans to attend CooperCon later this year? I want to, boy, I want to. I the thing is, when you live in Minnesota, you live in rural Minnesota. Um, getting getting away from this place is, uh, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but on a Thanksgiving weekend, it becomes impossible because it's like, do I abandon my family and just say, hey, I got this thing. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. I'm gone. If it was not hill on Thanksgiving or near Thanksgiving, I could do it that it is close to Thanksgiving. I can't do it. Uh, but again, I'm going to try. I'm going to find some way to do it so I can fly in and fly out and still uh, spend time with the family. I'm just skeptical that it can be done. Well, I hope I end up seeing you out there later this year. Well, I definitely want to make a trip out. I wanted to do it this year during the spring floods, again, to see the Washougal, but that may have to wait until next year. I don't know. I, the trip, A trip to Oregon... And Washington is definitely in my future. Have you ever been out there? Uh, I was very, very young. I think my my dad and I and the family were in Okinawa, and we flew in from Okinawa via, I think, Alaska. I think one of our stops was actually in Oregon. I was about five or six, so I don't really remember it other than the airport and all the people in uniform. So I've technically been there, but I haven't been there, been there. What do you think is going to happen in the case in the next year? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, You have, so we're all prepping. The 50th anniversary is coming up. So you have all the people. I know Eric is Eric Ulis, another uh, Cooper researcher. He intends to publish a book here. Uh, You have Tom Kay and his research. I think there is a chance that Tom Kay figures out exactly where Cooper worked. And I have debated whether to contact Tom Kay with my findings. I have 
interacted with Tom K before. I've um, done some legwork on other parts of his research, and I've given him the results of those of that legwork. But I've never personally contacted him about my suspect. Uh, but if he has information like like he revealed on your podcast about where these these particles could come from, the actual companies. Uh, that would be a big help in my my research. So I, that contact's going to come up pretty soon. But we have a chance that Tom K finds out where he worked, which would be fantastic. I think you're going to have a few books. I think there's going to be some people publishing books um, about a number of suspects that we haven't heard of. We have this in the Cooper world. Now that it's been so long, you can basically claim anyone you want to be D.B. Cooper and write a book about it as long as they're male they kind of fit the description and they're kind of wacky and not to, uh, but like Walter Recca is that guy. He's kind of weird, kind of wacky, almost fits the description, has an unusual story. And I think you'll get more of those types of books. They tend to be a distraction in my mind, but they're, these are all fascinating people. One of the good things about this case is that you get these fascinating, interesting people um, and you get to find out about them and read about them. And, you know, for better or worse, uh, a lot of these guys are veterans. A lot of these guys were um, smoke jumpers. And every, every biography gives you more information about what men were like uh, culturally uh, during this time period. That's an interesting way to look at it. Do you think that it moves the case along? You know, if somebody comes out tomorrow and says, you know, I, I got this book that Tommy Wiseau was D.B. Cooper. Does that move the case along at all, or do you think it hurts it? A little column A, a little column B. It it helps in the pub. The biggest thing is it helps in publicity, but it could be the wrong publicity because I I know a lot of my my friends who do not share my obsession. They say, "Oh, I saw some documentary on this. This case is solved." And you want to say, "No, it's not." Um, that <laughs> that documentary was interesting, but they didn't find any evidence. Like so much of of uh, these documentaries. I, I come from the world of politics back 10, 12 years when I was very active. And we had a saying, we said, all publicity is good publicity. There's no such thing as bad publicity. As long as your name's out there and people are talking about you, you can win an election. And I think the same thing is true here. As long as the publicity is there, people are talking about the case, we'll get more people. And there's a, there's a tiny chance that uh, they'll hear about Tom Kay's findings or they'll hear about my research, and it might spark uh, some other other ideas and other other names that we can research. Yeah, I agree with that. I think definitely does. I mean, I got into this case, I got Skyjack as a gift and read that, and it kind of leads into Robert Blevins' book. And so I bought that. And so after I had read those, I was like, okay, I know who D.B. Cooper was. It was Kenny Christensen. Um, and then just still being interested, looking into the case more, um, now, now I honestly don't even know who it was. Uh, I'm so confused by having read every suspect account and diving into everything that, you know, I get asked that all the time, you know, who do you think it is? And I really don't know anymore. It seems like the more I research it, the more I don't know who it was, but I do enjoy all of the suspects and all of the cases and all of the books. I, en I enjoy the story. So when I hear anything new come out, you know, I enjoy it. I look forward to it. Yeah. And unlike other people, I don't really get into the, uh, the rivalries. 
there are a lot of rivalries and people, a lot of people in this, in this world don't get along. Oh yeah. I try to get along with everybody. Oh yeah. I know. I get along uh, as far as I know. Uh, no one has burned me in effigy. Uh, I do know, like for instance, Robert Blevins, he's very controversial. I've never had a bad interaction with him. Um, and actually his book, he, he, he interviewed Himmelsbach and one of the people he talked about was Max Gunther. And that is the only source I've tried to contact Himmelsbach before, but he charges $600 for an interview. And actually now it's probably too late as I've been told that he's not doing interviews anymore. Um, but as far as I know, that is the only little, little snippet of information that I have from Himmelsbach is in that book into the blast. So these, each little thing helps uh, every, every little bit of the case. And uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for it. This, uh, it's a community that I had no intention of joining that I'm now firmly in. And I'm, I'm actually happy for it. There's a lot of great guys in it. Oh yeah. I, and I agree with that. Definitely. I've met a lot of really cool people doing this um, and people that I'll probably remain friends with for, for quite a while, uh, even after the show has run its course. Uh, and whether or not D.B. Cooper is found, I'd imagine uh, I'll still have a relationship. Yeah, it, it's you don't you don't think it would happen, and it does, and and I guess that's just life. Not to get too philosophical about it. Um, talking about Blevins talking to uh, Himmelsbach and Max Gunther, Joe Weber supposedly also talked to Max Gunther. Have you looked into that at all? Yes. Um, that, that <clears throat> Joe is, uh, and as you, 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 you hear about this in Sky Jack, she is a force of nature. She is quite the personality. I have spent many hours on the phone with her. I've had email exchanges with her. I have, um, talked to her about this and she says that she has a correspondence, written correspondence with Max Gunther. And I have been asking for years to see it or to see photocopies of it. And sometimes she says yes. Sometimes she says no. I have offered to pay for any help that she needs um, getting this to me and, and possibly other, other financial problems that she might have. But she's in the, in the end, the information I need has never been released. And the thing is, I can't even confirm what's frustrating about this is I believe her. I, I believe that she thinks that, that, Dwayne Weber was Cooper. I believe her that she says that she interacted with Max Gunther, but I can't confirm any of it. I wouldn't even need to read the letter. I would just need to see the envelope to see that she had actually been exchanging letters with Max Gunther. That would help a lot in itself. Uh, her story is very interesting. You know, you wonder what motivation Dwayne would have for just throwing this at her on his deathbed like that. And it has definitely changed the course of her life. Oh, certainly. Um, she, and she's she's only been very, very kind, very, very wonderful to me. Um, she's you know we've had we've had long phone discussions, and I I wish her the best. But she also, on the other hand, is very, very frustrating because here's his information that it could be very, very useful. For one thing, people say that Max Gunther wrote a novel. And I, it's, I think that's ridiculous. He didn't write a novel. He was a journalist and he wrote a book about this, this person he talked to. She has letters that would show that Max Gunther was still looking for Clara, for the, the source of him, his information. 
in the late 1990s, just before his death, that he was, you know, he, he was, uh, that he flew into Los Angeles to talk to a person that, that, that Joe Weber said was, was Clara. If that is true, if that's the case, then we can definitely say that Gunther was not, did not write fiction. He was not writing um, a money grab. This was an actual work of, of, of journalism that he was interested in and he wanted to solve this case to the day he died, that would be huge. But I definitely can't can't prove it without the letters, right? You can't prove it without the evidence, and it's not there. And I, I like I said, it, it is very frustrating. I don't want to say a bad thing about anybody here. Um, and I don't know exactly why she's withholding it. She has her own motivations. And I'll just leave it at that. Sorry, to jump back to Max Gunther's book uh, again here for a minute. What do you think of the fact that so many of the things he printed in that book kind of have come true? Um, like maybe he worked in industrial chemicals, um, and then you have that Lake Elsinore visit. I mean, these are things right. that would Max Gunther he, he couldn't have made those up. I mean, he one is yes, he could. It's very difficult to put a number on it. I actually attempted in my book. So you look, you open up um, the labor, you know, Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks this kind of thing. How many people were working in industrial chemicals as, you know, as a manager? Not very many. How many careers are listed by the Bureau of Labor Statistics at this time? And the answer is in the thousands. If you randomly pick one, you know, it's one in a thousand chance there. Uh, and why would he do it? Why would he pick that? It, it's an, It's just so improbable. And what are the chances that it would match up with later forensic evidence, you know, uh, in the case, just super, super low, almost impossible. Same thing with the Elsinore Paris Center. There's no way Max could have known that the FBI in, in 1972 went to the Elsinore Paris Center because somebody said that they talked to D.B. Cooper about jumping out of an aircraft. The guy looked like him. He was wearing Cochrane boots. He was at the Elsinore Paris Center. And he was that, that in the August of 1971, the, the hijacking was already in the works. There's no way Gunther would have been told this. In fact, I'm not, I'm not sure any, any one of the case agents knew about this. They certainly didn't know about it when Gunther wrote his book. And I don't think Larry Carr knew about it. And certainly Curtis Ng didn't get into the case at all. So that would not have been publicly available information. So he has two hits, two huge hits that are highly unlikely that are in the book. Actually, when I first read the book and I was marking it up, I wrote in that section of the book I thought was false. I thought that this Elsinore Paris Center conversation could not have happened. And I wrote in the margin, why didn't this guy come forward? Turns out, as he's FOIA documents are released to us, that person did come forward and the FBI did look at it, but they couldn't find him. And we have an answer as to why they couldn't find him. He was using a pseudonym. So they get a name, they have nowhere to go. They can't find the guy because it's not his real name. And he was hiding his identity. He was um, basically trying to avoid his wife his, or his ex-wife and not give her any money or, or however that, you know, that whole situation was playing out. That's huge. It's, it's so unlikely. And when I found that information, I found it so compelling. I'm like, finally, I have a huge, this is a huge hit, even compared to the industrial chemicals hit. And uh, as, as always with the Cooper case, 
money talks and the best finance people are the ones that get the airtime. And I'm definitely not the best finance person in the room. Have you reached out to Max Gunther's heirs about the book? Because he said he had, he kept everything. He had all these notes, kept all the communications. And he, he also, and I, he said that in the, in the book itself, he also said, cause again, this, this book that he wrote on, on how to write nonfiction books, he said that he kept everything that every nonfiction book he had, he had a box with all of his research and all of his papers and notes that he kept just in case. So he would have a huge library of this stuff. And if he, if that still existed, one, I'd be able to get to see his actual notes with his conversations with Clara so we know what was real and what wasn't. Uh, two, they'd have DNA for Clara. Three, they'd have DNA for D.B. Cooper on the envelope because he said he kept those. It would be a, a tremendous help to the case, and I think would even solve the case now that we have incredible DNA databases available publicly. I have trouble contacting people, and I, let me and I'll explain it like this: um, Max Gunther's heirs are not Max Gunther. All right, one of them is a writer or was a writer, but but his he. His other children do not seek the limelight, and they it is not their fault that Gunther wrote this book, and they should not be bothered um, or harassed about it. So what I did is I, I wrote a simple letter, and I said, look, this is the only letter you'll get to me. If you want to talk to me about this, respond to this letter. Here's my phone number. Here's my email. Here's my address. Um, if you don't want to hear from me again, just don't, you know, don't respond. And I will never bother you again. I have gotten no response from any of his heirs and I have to respect their wishes to not be contacted on this as much as it, it frustrates me. And that's, uh, and, and that's where I'm stuck. I know other people have tried to contact them and, and they've had similar results. They've actually, as far as I know, they've actually called them. And that's just not what I'm going to do. Yeah, they're not exactly responsible for their father's work. And it's it's something, it's a difficulty for anybody. So another Cooper researcher who's definitely on the fringes, uh, he's, on, he's on the drop zone all the time. I don't want to name him. He thought he had figured out who the Golden State Killer was. And he accused this individual of being the Golden State Killer. And he published this stuff on Twitter and he published it online somehow, and he had he, he does a lot of photo um, analysis, photo comparisons. Turns out this individual was not the Golden State Killer, as we as we now know. Uh, his son contacted me and said, "Hey, do you know this guy? Can you get him off my back? We've we had to give a DNA sample. We didn't have to, but they offered a DNA sample uh, to the police just to clear his name because he's being harassed so much." You know, that really spoke to me about how, you know, we're not, I'm not a journalist. I'm not, a, I'm not employed by a newspaper or a, a media company. I'm just a writer. Uh, I, and I have a, my own career. So I do this as a hobby and I'm just some guy. So you approach people as just some guy, as a Cooper researcher. And, and that's that. You can't pursue it any more than that because you're not Woodward and Bernstein. You, you don't have... And Woodward and Bernstein, by the way, had gatekeepers, they had editors, they had people who were looking over them. 
Uh, I, I definitely don't have that. No one's you know making sure that I, I don't make a mistake like that and accuse somebody of being a criminal when they're not. So you have to be very conservative and very cautious with it. And I wish other people were too, but I can't control them either. Oh, there's a, there's a lot of that going on. A lot, a lot of these accusations are harassing family members. And I, I talked to my uncle, who's a detective about this, the sort of legality of accusing a dead person of a crime. And there, there really isn't any sort of structure in place to, I mean, you can't sue them for slander. Nope. Cause they're dead. Right. And so uh, I have friends who are lawyers and they tell me there's no jeopardy. Uh, you, you, a person's, a person's reputation is valuable to them only as long as they're alive. As soon as they're dead, their reputation has no monetary value uh, for obvious reasons. So there's no reason to worry about it. You're not going to lose a job or you're not, you're not going to, you know, not get, you're not going to lose monetary compensation because of uh, an accusation like that when you're dead. So you can do whatever you want and, it, it's a it's a problem in the law, and that's it's fine in, in a certain way. It's okay to say, "Hey, I think James Klansnick could be DB Cooper." That's not a problem. His, the problem is going after the family. The problem is uh, pursuing this to to a degree um, that that borders on derangement. <laughs> to be fair, um, or I guess to be blunt about it. So. That is that is a, a definite concern of mine because basically what I'm going to be doing if I do solve this case is saying, hey, this individual was a criminal and um, th- th- when that goes out, like this person had family probably. This person had friends and they may not like hearing that and it's something that you have to live with. So if you're going to make that accusation, you have to be very, very confident. What about the accusations against people who are alive? There's two prominent suspects in Sheridan Peterson and, and Robert Rackstraw. They're both alive. How does that work? Now, it's – so uh, once again, you got me outside my field. I'm not a lawyer. I just happened to – I went to college with a bunch of lawyers. Well, they became lawyers after college. And the question is whether or not, one, is is there jeopardy? So does accusing Robert Rackstraw of being D.B. Cooper jeopardize – his livelihood or jeopardize his safety in any way. I think with Rackstraw, uh, I don't think it does. I mean, he, he doesn't embrace it necessarily, but he, he doesn't seem to mind the, the limelight. And we have to remember is that he was accused of and probably did murder his stepfather. So there's a case to be made that he is a public figure because he was in the news and whatever, whenever he was tried, 1980 or so. So Rackstraw might be might be a public figure, and um, Rackstraw himself hasn't claimed any jeopardy, as far as I know. I, there's been some filings in that case, but you can kind of get away with it because Rackstraw just has that main, kind of that mentality that that attracts a sort of interest. I can't imagine he'll get a lot of money from it for being accused of it. Um, oh, he seems to kind of like smile and wink at the idea he was D.B. Cooper, too. Yeah, he seems to really enjoy it. And guess what? When you're, when you're trying to tell a judge, like, hey, I've been damaged by this, by this accusation, please give me money. And you you can see in these interviews 
that he's kind of smiling about it, winking, you know, yeah, you're not going to get a big payout at that point. Sheridan Peterson is another matter. Once again, Sheridan Peterson might be a public figure because he was a political activist who opposed the war. He might be a public figure because he kind of almost, but not really published a book. Um, And he might be a public figure because he willingly was interviewed by the History Channel. If you're a public figure, libel is out the window. The other thing is, where is the jeopardy? Is Sharon Peterson being hurt by his accusations? Maybe his reputation is being hurt, but by but financially, how much? Um, is it really harming him in any way? I don't know. Uh, he seemed to, during that History Channel interview, he seemed to be having a bit of fun. Like He, he really enjoyed talking to those people. So is there going to be a payout in his future? I doubt it. But mm, from my perspective, you just have to be respectful of people. And I want to be respectful of Sheridan Peterson. I don't think he was D.B. Cooper, but he's part of this case. He's part of the history of this case. And I think it's okay to talk about it. Um, And the only thing that really changes my mind about it is I've heard some people accuse him of murder. Uh, and I, I have not really looked into that, but that to me crosses a line because I don't think there's any evidence for that. Yeah, that definitely sounds like it would cross a line. I think one of the things that lets people root for D.B. Cooper, I've said this many times, is that no one was hurt. No one was physically hurt in, in the skyjacking. So it's sort of like this guilt-free, unsolved cold case. Yeah, there's there's a lot I love about Cooper um, offering the tips to the to the stewardesses, uh, bringing you know, uh, bringing food on for them, making sure that they had his drinks. Right, paying for his drinks. Uh, You you don't often get a bank robber who's going to try to tip the teller on the way out. Uh, That's that's definitely it's it's definitely a problem when you're saying this is a diehard criminal who's you know a super evil guy. We do know that there was some emotional harm. Uh, Radichak, um, you know, you see him crying on the History Channel. It looks like Tina Mucklow definitely handled it pretty bad, pretty well. She she was a very mature woman, and but I think there was some emotional harm there. But uh, for the most part, were these people harmed in in a way that you can you know can you put a number on it, a dollar value on it? Not really. It's unfortunate. That that he did have to, you know, he did have to say, look, give me the money or I'll murder everybody on this plane. But looking back on it, uh, compared to other similar crimes, this is about as kind and gentle as you could be. This is this is as polite as you could be in that situation. And it looked like he was really trying to do it. And, it, and just to make sure, one, he got the money, two, he got out of the aircraft and three, everybody was was taken care of. And it's, uh, you just have to admire that. And you have to hope that his story is such that he did have a really good reason to need the money. And I, I kind of hope that, that Tom K is right, that he was put in a terrible situation that he had to pay his way out of. And this was the only chance he had. I don't you know, happen to believe that, but if it ends up being true, then, then uh, the more the better. Yeah, it is interesting that here he is, hey, I have a bomb and I'll blow this plane up. But at the same time, he's obviously looking out for the passengers and especially the flight crew. 
Do you think there's there's any chance that that bomb was real? No, not a chance. The bomb is a it is it exists for one reason, and that is to be a threat. But it doesn't have to be real to be a threat. If you look at it uh, just from a base, do you want to play the game of is the bomb real or not? If you are the pilot, of course not. There's a chance it's real. If there's any chance it's real, if there's a 1% chance it's real, then you die. Well, you don't want to take that 1%. You know, I don't want to bet my life on a 1% chance, even if 99 times out of 100 I live, because there's that one chance in 100 that I die. So it doesn't have to be real. It just has to be good enough to work as a prop to send the message uh, that, hey, I've thought about this. This is my answer. This is a bomb. I am threatening you. And give me the money, right? Zero, in my mind, zero chance that it's real. Uh, it'd be too dangerous to, to handle. I wouldn't want dynamite on me as I'm jumping. Modern explosives, I, you can, I mean, paratroopers jump with these things all the time uh, in, obviously in military situations. So maybe he wouldn't care. But as just personally, I wouldn't want to jump with dynamite. So I think there's no reason for it to be real. Uh, the threat, the, the way it looked, the threat was good enough to get away with it. And uh, once you get, once you make something, make a prop good enough to send the message that, hey, it could be real, you've, you've accomplished all you can do. Yeah, I, I, I personally don't think the bomb was real. There, like you said, there's no need for it to be real. And there's there's some hints of it too with the way he talked. And he, and he said, hey, be careful with your radio transmissions. You might set the bomb off. Well, that's kind of silly if you think about it because it's a battery with two ends. And so you have a if, – if you know how a bomb works, then, then what you're saying is that the electrical circuit is complete. And once you complete the electrical circuit, the detonator goes off, detonator goes off, the bomb goes off. So how does a radio frequency get involved there? It, it doesn't. It's just – to me, it, it says, hey, Cooper is being kind of coy about this and he's – and it's a prop. And you wouldn't say that unless you're trying to really interfere with the cockpit's ability to communicate with people trying to kill you. And that's, that's what he was doing. Who do you think is D.B. Cooper? Oh, I, I, it's one of the names and one of my, one of my giant lists of people. I, I know I named a Dan Clare in my book, and I no longer believe it was he. But I have approximately, of the three, three and a half thousand names that I have, I have about 300 that I'm really interested in. Of those 300, there's about 50. And of those 50, I think there's six really good candidates in there. But I don't want to throw names out there, and it may be years until I do. So you have 50 names and six are really good candidates. Yeah. Well, you need to get to work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. What slowed you down? Just time? It's It's time. It's time and it's the fact that you have to define these obituaries. You're often looking at old newspapers and sometimes you're contacting libraries and having them pull obituaries and and they don't like being given this work. Uh, and I can't travel to New Jersey to get, to get this done on my own. So sometimes you have to ask for just a big file of uh, – you know, and it's all a microfiche, and uh, it is a nightmare. So you you go through the public library, and they'll transfer from li- one library system to the other to the other, and you get a limited time with it. 
each each name it takes weeks uh, when you don't have a digitized obituary. The great news is whenever you find an obituary that's been digitized, you can almost guarantee that's not the person. So you can eliminate a person right away. But man, it, it is uh it it is just super laborious. I imagine. And uh, it, when you're chasing suspects and hitting dead ends, I imagine that's not the most fun thing to do either. No, no. It, Especially reading old, old, old obituaries. Yeah. It, it's, not, it, it's not the way I thought I'd be spending my, uh, my middle age. That's for sure. What do you need to help you go through those names faster? If there was one resource that you wish you had that you don't. And this is something that I've asked before is that I just need man hours. So it'd be nice to have institutional support. But the biggest thing is having a network of people who can investigate names and, and do so relatively quickly. So the, it, many hands make light work. So I have 3,000 some names. If I had 3,000 people, you could 3,000 people, each one of them investigating one of the names could probably get this done in a couple of months. Have you thought about asking the Vortex for help? Are you crazy? Have you met these people? <laughs> I've I, met most of them. <laughs> I, I think at one point, I, I took my Gunther hypothesis to the D.B. Cooper forum, and I took a real bruising. People are uh, very, very skeptical. I would say even radically skeptical of anything like this. And... Uh, just not very helpful. And for, you know, they're, they're defending, we're talking about time, right? So people are protective of their time, of their free time, and it's understandable. So uh, I have approached people to help me. Some have, some haven't, but I'm not going to ask one person to, to look through half my names for me. Often I'll just give them two or three names and then see what happens. Why are people spectacle, uh, spectacle? Why are people skeptical of your theory on the Max Gunther book. Why are they skeptical of the book in the first place? So there, not only are there the problems that, that Gunther has, and again, the second chapter that I talked about earlier, uh, Gunther says that the, the parachute was red and yellow. This is thrown at me a lot. That there's no way for the parachute to be red and yellow. Well, there's a chance that the parachute was orange and white. If Cooper jumped with an NB-8 it had a 28-foot 20, C9 canopy. That canopy came in, in a couple of color configurations. One was orange and white. The other one was quad. So it had a white, a brown, a green, and like a very bright red or a bright pink. The idea being if it's an emergency parachute, the green is for the forest, the brown is for dirt, uh, the white is for snow, and then the orange is to be seen by rescue. You know, if you're, if you're behind enemy lines trying to hide, you need camouflage and you're trying to get rescued you need something bright to be to be seen uh the the 302s from the fbi say it's white uh there were not any there were some 28 foot c8 canopies that it could have been but those are i've been told very rare or it was a 26 foot con you know conical canopy in the nb6 but once again we don't know what parachute he jumped with and any information from earl Cossey is suspect and they definitely didn't open up these parachutes to look. So I tend to think that what's happening is Clara saw the orange and white parachute and then 
12 years later was trying to remember what color the parachute was. And maybe she was remembering the, uh, the reserve parachute. Maybe she was, maybe she got the colors wrong. If you've ever tried to remember the color of a vehicle you just saw, this happens a lot. We don't remember colors even when we're trying to. I um, was um, almost mugged once and I was trying to get the, the remember the, the color of the vehicle when I reported it to police. And I, I said it was dark. It was dark and it was a dark colored sedan. I couldn't remember the color of the car. I looked and I looked right at the car um, trying to memorize the license plate, but I couldn't give a description of the car. Uh, and this, this also goes in the Gunther book. When the FBI was telling Gunther, look, we have all these witnesses and they tell us different things. And you hear about this and what color was the jacket that Cooper wore? Was it a, you know, was he wearing a black suit, a russet suit, dark brown suit? Um, people just don't memorize colors like this. So that, but, but it's something that people can attach to. Immediately say the color is wrong. Therefore, the story is incorrect. This one anomalous thing, she got it wrong. Therefore, the entire story is untrue. And I'm not, and I, you have to give people, you have to give eyewitnesses a chance to be wrong. And you can say, look, the story is mostly right. They just happen to not remember this one little bit. That's no reason to throw the entire story out. As, and this goes on me too. So when I look at Kenny Christensen, or if I look at Gossett, or I look at Dick, Dick Lepsey, I can't take just one tiny thing and say this eliminates him as a Cooper suspect. You have to look at the entire picture broadly. But um, what I found is that any little thing like that, any any little anything wrong, people will, will point to it and say this, the entire story is wrong. We have to toss it out. And um, there are those things in the book, and people just aren't interested after that. Yeah, and I guess most people in the vortex are pushing their own suspect. So yeah, about eighty percent of people have their own suspect. Yeah. All right, Marty. Well, what else do we need to know? I think there, just, there's a couple of things I want people to take away from any interview. One is that having looked at the, um, the parachute results out of World War II that I've done research on, we can say that Cooper lived. Two, based on the work done by Tom Kay, we can say that D.B. Cooper worked in industrial chemicals. And three, D.B. Cooper was at the Elsinore Paris Center in, 19, in August of 1971 and that he was talking to people and that people who were there, most of whom would be very young, may have interacted with him and that they deserve to hear that and say, hey, there was an, there was an old guy wearing Cochrane boots, obviously ex-military, who was wandering around Elsinore Paris Center. Maybe he didn't even take a jump, but he was there. And I know guys like Mark Metzler and other, other skydivers know that Elsinore was a very popular location at the time, we have a good chance of, of at least confirming how the way he looked and the way he acted, but he was definitely there. And those are the things I want people to know is that we're looking for a guy, left his family, worked in industrial chemicals. He was at the Elsinore Paris Center and he was a World War II paratrooper and he definitely survived regardless of whether or not he had the money to spend. Uh, he was alive on the ground and he was a, a living suspect, and that we can find him. Those are that is my message. I like it. Where can people find you if they want to reach out or if they have any questions? Sure, I have a contact page on my website. It's I'm cheap, so it's a WordPress website. MartinAndrade.wordpress.com. 
Um, I would prefer people go ahead and buy my book, uh, D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead, in America's Only Unsolved Skyjacking. It's available on Amazon. There is a, I believe there's a contact email in there. Uh, definitely my webpage has that contact information, and my webpage is in the book. And that's where you can follow me. Otherwise, I'm on the D.B. Cooper forum all the time, and I'm always happy to interact with people. And it's it's a great book. I mean, if you have any doubt that D.B. Cooper survived the jump, I'd highly recommend picking up picking up your book. Oh, well, thank you, sir. Thank you very much. All right, Marty. Well, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really do appreciate it. That was my pleasure. All right, thanks. It was great to finally have Marty on the show. I highly recommend you get a copy of his book, Finding D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead in America's Only Unsolved Skyjacking. He also continues to write about the case on his website, martinandrade.wordpress.com. You'll find links to it all in the show notes. If you have questions, comments, or if you suspect a family member could be D.B. Cooper, let us know. You can reach us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. On Twitter, at D.B. Cooper Podcast. Or email us at dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review for us wherever you listen. It's all we ask. Thank you to Martin Andrade for spending Cinco de Mayo with me. Thank you to Russell Colbert for fixing all my mistakes and making the show so great. This show wouldn't exist without him. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.